You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to this special report from the Legal Talk Network. We are podcasting from the Converge Conference sponsored by Above the Law here in New York City today. This is Bob Ambrogi. I'm co-host of the Lawyer to Lawyer show on Legal Talk Network. We are in this segment going to be talking a little bit about the future of law with a a group of panelists who are sitting here around me who've just finished uh, discussing that very topic. What I'm going to start to do to start is to just go around and ask you each to give me your name and tell me who you are. Hello. Uh, Good afternoon. My name is Sylvia Hodges-Silverstein. I'm the executive director of the Buying Legal Council, which is the organization for those working in procurement and sourcing legal services. I also teach law firm management at Columbia Law School and Fordham Law School. My name is Rakesh Madhava. I am the founder and CEO of NextPoint, and NextPoint delivers an evidence management service based in the cloud uh, for lawyers to manage their electronic data. I am Jess Hunt. I'm a managing director at Axiom Law, and Axiom is the largest provider of tech-enabled legal services and compliance services. And I'm Ellie Mistal. I make fun of people online for money. Um, I'm also one of the editors for Above the Law. Well, Ellie's clearly got the best job at this table. Um, Exactly. (laughs) Well, I I think it was uh, Yogi Berra who famously said that predictions are very hard to make, especially about the future. I was interested listening to the panel that, uh, Sylvia, you, I think you used the, the term at some point that we're at a, you think we're at a paradigm shift right now. And, and Rakesh, I, I think you followed that by saying you're ne- not necessarily so excited. Uh, you know, we can't, we don't know what's going to happen in the future, but, but where do you think we are right now? What, Sylvia, what brings you to say we're, you're seeing a paradigm shift right now? What's got you excited about that? Well, lots of topics that I started talking about five years ago. So in my case, procurement, the involvement of procurement and purchasing of legal services. They uh, Five years ago, in 2010, people were like, what? What, what, are you, what are you even talking about? And now everybody is using uh, words and, and, using, and, and seeing things as the, the normal uh, situation. So lots of developments that we're seeing through technology or enabled through technology because technology gives us the transparency, technology gives us the tools. We're seeing them now and they let us do things, let us deliver legal services in a different way, let us purchase legal services in a different way that we just haven't seen. So Rakesh, when you say you're not so excited, what's, what do you say to that? Well, it's not, I, I mean, when, when I said i not necessarily excited about the future. I think it is not out of a sense of trepidation. I think that it is a sense of curiosity. Like, I don't know if I'm necessarily going to be happy with everything that happens in the future, right? I do know it's going to be a really interesting process to watch it to watch it evolve. And I think technology in some ways is just kind of a thing. It will have negative implications and it'll have positive implications. There are going to be things that change about our lives that we're going to love. And there are going to be things about our lives that are going to be lost, that we're going to feel remorse over. And I think, you know, trying to think about technology in that way is the process, technology is a process of changing and um, to sort of embrace it as a process versus trying to kind of assign uh, a value judgment around it. 
Jessica, where do you see where we are right now? What's your assessment of all this? Well, I agree we're in the amidst changes and that all, not all of those changes will be good. So I agree with both. But um, I think there's plenty to look forward to. Um, we talked a little bit about uh, the way the way ch- technology is changing the practice of the law. Um, and the, I think the big message um, uh, that we've been talking about today is that, um, that when the law is practiced um, artisanally, where um, the work is done that's novel, special, complex, um, those things will likely remain, certainly in the short term. Um, but there are other parts of the practice of law that will change or, in fact, even be eliminated. And uh, Ellie, what what do you think on this? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a, I think one of the things we talked about on the panel, right, there's, there's a big disconnect between the practice of law from the business side and the education of lawyers. Um, and while I think that it's, I think it's, I think it's good to be excited about um, the different ways that we're going to attack client services in the future, um, I'm still very ambivalent about the way that we're educating the lawyers of the future. And I think that until we have a revolution in the way that lawyers themselves are educated, not only are we going to have a retarded progress in terms of better client services, but you're also going to have a lot of recent graduates who experience a lot of pain who are, you know, graduate with skills that are not marketable. What about the business model of how law practices? I mean, you just alluded to this, but of how law is practiced today. Jessica, you work for a, a company, a firm. What, what do you call it? Is, is it a firm? Uh, how, what do you call it? Is it a firm or a company? A company. It's a company. Okay. Uh, that is, you know, uh, seen as being on the kind of leading edge of, of changing the business model. So, w- w- how how is the business model changing in terms of how law is practiced? Well, I think so. Um, work that it is high volume and repetitive. Um, can be um, process managed. I think that's one of the big messages. Um, and lawyers aren't always the best equipped to do those things. Um, so th- that changes the practice of the law, of the law a little bit. Um, but it also changes, as uh, Sylvia was saying, um, the procurement of the law and for in-house, um, the way that um, the practice of the law can um serve an enterprise in new ways, in really profound ways, Um, either whether it's to um, uh, revenue improvement, customer experience, um, even help manage risk in new ways, which is, of course, the traditional practice of law, the value of law. Do clients want that? I mean, I know I read that clients say they want that, but do they really want that? Well, they're certainly under a lot of pressure to deliver on some of those things. Yeah. What do you say, Sylvia? So on that client side, we we hear a lot that, uh, I mean, let's start, who really is the client? Is the client the corporation or is the client the legal department? And this is where it really starts because I see some forces where the legal department wants one thing and then other parts of the company want another thing. So what the, what the clients are now getting to is to really say, okay, the top management mandate is to manage legal spend better because if you have double or triple a digit millions uh, dollars legal spend you can't just continue like that because as we talked uh, in our panel before the the um, corporations are not growing um, as they, as they used to so the legal department has to be part of the uh, good corporate citizen. And this is where the uh, tools like uh, project management and, and really legal spend management, meta management, all that uh, good stuff comes in and uh, just needs to be put in a way that it's aligned with the, the, the direction where the corporation goes generally. So that sounds like it's a matter of we're talking about 
in putting into place better business processes, but also better technological tools to help manage those processes or create efficiencies in those processes? I, I think it. I think it remains largely a function of what kind of corporation is. If we're talking narrowly about like the corporate, the needs of corporate law firms, or I mean of corporate um, legal departments, right? I think you know there are companies whose fundamental business model. Uh, needs to be reinvented. And they're looking to do that across all of their organizational units. And so they're going to every unit and saying, hey, you know, we're going to have to change the way we do business, right? If you're Coca-Cola, you're coming to the realization that a lot of people suddenly may not want your product and you need to diversify your brands, you need to add new things. And so you go to legal and say, we have to do things differently than we did before. I think there are a lot of companies who they have established business models and what they're doing is they're just looking to preserve them. And in those organizations, that's what their lawyers do. Their lawyers seek to just preserve those business models. So I think for lawyers, it's really a question of aligning what kind of law you want to practice with what that organization does with where they're at in their development. Yeah. I mean, there does seem to be this inherent tension between uh, what the way lawyers want to bill. I mean, you said during the panel, the billable hour is Superman, I think, if, yeah. if I got your quote right, which I thought was great, uh, because you hear all the time about alternative fees, but we're not seeing them to any great extent, and, and the billable hour prevails. But yet, yet you're working Rakesh, I, I, I in, in totally an industry where... I totally disagree with that. That's not you, what I see. You, you don't, you don't no, see that. I mean, I'm just going to say, I mean, Rakesh works in an industry where your, your whole job is about making the work of law sort of more efficient and more streamlined in a way that lawyers should not have to spend as much time on matters. Uh, There's no shortage of folks we talk to who literally say, you're just trying to give me a way to make for me to make less money, right? Yeah. which is not true. There's tons of work to be done uh, by getting rid of the low value. And it's not, I mean, it's not low value. Finding stuff is important. It's hard to find things and find facts in a case. Um, but that's not all that needs to get done. That's just the first part. Then you have to actually do the legal work behind it, right? If you can get help getting through that finding stuff part faster, then you're going to be able to spend more of your mind share on actually thinking about the legal ram- the legal framework of the case, the factual issues in the case, what the motivations are of the witnesses, all the things that people love to do, the things that lawyers love about practicing law, right? I think... I, I also do disagree. I think that billable. I, I think that we are seeing more clients who are coming in. It actually is tending to be a driver for us. Is folks coming in saying we have to do this on a fixed fee basis? We we have to have price transparency. Yeah. So Sylvia, you but you you see it otherwise? Yeah, because uh, let's say ten years ago there were hardly any alternative fee arrangements. There was just some talk, and now we. Definitely, there are some companies where, like GlaxoSmithKline, for example, where um, I don't know the number uh, numbers by heart, but in 2008, I think they had about three percent of all their matters on alternative fee arrangements, and uh, in, by 2013, it was uh, 75 percent or so. So, not everybody is like GlaxoSmithKline, but there are definitely lots of clients that are pushing for alternative fee arrangements because they say, if I pay by the hour. I encourage paying for inefficiency. So in what circumstance does it make sense? And this whole argument that everything is so complex, well, if we can put um, satellites uh, into space on on a fixed budget or, or um, on a, a project schedule, why can we not do that to the law? That is something that the clients just don't understand. And on billable hours, I think the other way I've seen it express itself is... And I'm, I'm not really ever a believer in those public 
those published numbers that say, you know, the, we did a survey and hourly rates by average are up 2% or 5% this year. I think somehow that doesn't, that doesn't, you know, uh, comport with what, what I hear when I talk to our lawyers, particularly in the big firms, which they're saying, we have a large client who comes in and they're giving us a lot of work, but they're just killing us on our rate. They've just, they've just made us cut our rate by 30%. Now, we got a whole lot more of it, but we're making a lot less per hour. Yeah. I think the bill of hour stickiness goes to two fundamental issues. One, it's hard for lawyers to get paid by outcomes because the outcomes are you can't guarantee you ethically you can't guarantee an outcome and even kind of intellectually like if i if i'm a, if i take your case and you end up paying a 10 million dollar fine well i might have been a great lawyer cuz maybe you should have been paying a 50 million dollar fine right so so it's hard to for lawyers to get charged by the outcome um, secondly it's it's hard for it's hard for non-lawyers to assess what a lawyer is actually doing with that with that time. So I might look at your case and say, like, yeah, I think I can handle this in a day or two or five. But as I get into the weeds with it, maybe it requires me to spend five or ten or fifteen days with it. And and how do I charge you for that? I charge you by the hour. And so I, I that's why the billable hour has been sticky, this sticky these past hundred and fifty years. We'll see. <laughs> you know, we'll kind of see how how, how it develops. But but yeah. people have tried to kill this before, and it and it kind of keeps coming back. Yeah. So so how could this develop? I mean, we saw it last year the collapse. So I don't know the collapse, the death, whatever you want to call it, of, of Clearspire, which was sort of positioned as an alternative way of delivering uh, legal services with more of a transparent fee model and a greater use of technology and business practices. And it lasted what two or three years, I, I think, and then went under. Uh, so where where do we go in terms of evolving the the business structure for delivering legal services? Well, just because one company is going down, it doesn't mean that this is oh my god, it's not working. If you look at any kind of industry, when something new uh, something new happens, there will be those businesses that are going to be successful, and there will be lots of them that are not successful. But, but so what is working that's different? Who, who's breaking from the law? Maybe Axiom is an example of who's breaking from the traditional model in some way, uh, having yeah. some success. It's certainly not an alternative to the billable hour, but by using software is allowing us to, um, and it's not just Axiom, but allowing us to measure um, work. You, we have gr- much greater transparency in, um, especially for high volume, less complex work. It is uh, becoming easier and easier, and this is especially true in house for um, corporate legal departments to measure performance, cycle time, um, and find bottlenecks um, in pro- in legal processes. Um, that's actually a, a, a tremendously enabling um, for legal departments. I think it's legal zoom. I think it's I think it's a class. I mean, Washington State has a new pilot program um, where they're going to be training people to do kind of sub legal work, but still represent people. I think it's I think what I I when I look into the future, I see two classes of lawyers. I see one much like they have been these past 150 years, and another I don't want to call it a subclass in the pejorative way, but a different kind of legal service provider who is empowered to help you with a will, who is empowered to help you with a divorce. Um, who is empowered to do a, a bunch of other things that we traditionally are only you only have have to have to be an accredited lawyer can do, that can do those things. I think twenty thirty years down the road there will be a, a two a two service model. Well, well, much really, like a medicine. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, one of the you know the analogy that I've kind of made in looking at in looking at uh, the legal industry, and I ultimately think that this is about the internet and this is about cloud computing. That the 
big, you know, structural change in the legal industry will be reflective of the big structural change in the entire rest of society, which is the advent and the adoption of the internet by every person in the country. And so I, one of the parallels that I've made that I've thought that law firms were an interesting analogy to were newspapers, uh, especially particularly big city newspapers, where you had these organizations that were reliant on their physical location for demonstrating expertise. They had a lot of big iron infrastructure in order to make paper and send it around. And so they really controlled the distribution channel. But their ultimate content was intellectual property. It was their ultimate con- content was the written word, right? And that's kind of what you have with lawyers. Like, you need a lawyer in a jurisdiction, and what they do for you is largely intellectual property, right? Yeah. And so if you're going to make that, if you're going to carry that kind of analogy through, right, what you've seen is that the larger firms, the larger papers have gone bankrupt. They've collapsed. Now, did all those writers just, did the content generators just go away, or do they just stop writing? No. They started writing for blogs. They started writing for, you know, they started working in new media, digital media, right, as opposed to all paper-based media. And I think, you know, the sort of theory that, like, the large, larger entities will continue to decouple into smaller where experts are just experts on their own behalf and they team up with other experts and form a smaller firm um, seems to me to be a pretty logical conclusion to make. So, yeah, although I, I wanted to follow up on something you just touched on, which is this, you know, talk about legal zoom, the limited licensed legal technicians in Washington. I mean, those, those are solutions, if you want to call them that, that are targeted at the low and moderate income sector of the population of people who just can't get access to legal services. There's a real crisis in that area. They just can't afford lawyers. Nobody's offering services. There's shortfalls in, in, in availability of legal services lawyers. You know, and and the, on the sort of the corporate level, there isn't that kind of crisis that's driving some kind of a a, a change. I mean, Goldman can still get find a lawyer, can't they? They can still <laughs> find a lawyer, and and they 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 complain about it, but but they're not suffering in that way. So you know, I mean, to me, that's really driving significant change on that sort of lower end of the economic spectrum. And I just don't know what what it might be up there that's going to drive the change on the upper end. Of well, the if we look spectrum. at the UK, for example, we have a number of, of entities now that actually cater exactly to that market that you say is not really being catered to in the US. So whether that's a Riverview law or all the, let's say, second brands that now the Magic Circle or the Silver Circle firms have set up, they have their their lawyers then not in London where real estate costs uh, even more than, than it costs here in New York City, but uh, they might have it in Northern uh, Ireland or in Northern England where they say, a on on real estate cost and, and B on on uh, cost for for human resources, and then they use technology, they use processes and so on. So this is absolutely happening. But uh, it's happening in part because they've had the Legal Services Act, which lets private entities invest in the delivery of legal services, and we don't have that here. Do we need to have that here? Should we have that here? I think that we really see the the clients pushing towards alternative solutions because the ones who are really embracing uh, for example the the procurement of legal services are the multinationals and so they see what's going on in other markets and they they not everything has to be done in 
in the US necessarily. Some things obviously have to be done in the US, but not everything needs to be done in the US. And so I do see a shift. What I also see happening is that we might go towards an uh, approach where lawyers don't just do troubleshooting as they are now, but they actually do cause analysis and maybe avoid some legal issues. Preventive law. Yes, absolutely. I think that that will be something that we'll be seeing. I don't really see a whole lot of that going on in the U.S. right now. Yeah, I do think that Sylvia's right. I, th- I think we're we're going there, um, but I don't think that's a great thing. I, I do. I, I I worry about business people taking over legal services because I still believe in a version of law that is less about making money and more about some kind of abstract protection of legal principles that I think you start to lose when you when you bring in. The business people. Now, granted, I'm a writer, and I think you start to lose uh, writing integrity um, once the wall between editorial and which is completely broken down already. So, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit talking like it's 1950 here, and I, and I get that. But yeah, I don't. I don't think it's. A, I put like this. I certainly don't think it's as an unqualified positive to bring investors in um, to law firm management. I think that companies that behave unethical, they don't have a long life. So, I understand your point, what you're worried about, but. I really have to see a law firm that doesn't want to be fairly compensated and doesn't want to make money. And ever since the American lawyers started to publish uh, all the, the profit numbers and so on, I think it's hard to argue that law firms are not businesses. Yeah. And, and plus there are, is, I mean, you alluded earlier in the conversation to the sort of the more commoditized aspects of, of the delivery of legal services, which do seem ripe for some sort of corporate uh, management, at least. Uh. No, I, I definitely think it's going to happen. I mean, look, law, lawyers are terrible men. We, we, we can we can do a whole show talking about how bad lawyers are at math, uh, <laughs> thinking side outside the box and change. So, so I, I, I think it's coming. I just don't. I don't necessarily welcome our new robot overlords. Right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm writing that down for a future show idea, how bad lawyers are at math. That's, that'll be a really fascinating one. Uh, actually, I wanted to ask you about that. I noticed the teaser for the panel that you did uh, said we're going we're gonna to settle the question of whether robots are coming to take all our jobs. Are they? Yeah, I think, I, I think the, uh, this might be a little bit of a weird analogy. Does anybody remember a mech warrior? Right, I think that's more the answer, right? Where it's a, a mechanical exoskeleton, but still there's a human somewhere pushing all the buttons. Yeah. I think that was the answer. Drone warfare. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although we keep hearing that we keep oh, hearing we keep hearing the Watson is going to practice law stories. And now that there's the uh, Watson version up in Canada that's doing legal research, uh, I forget what they call it. Um, we did talk Ross. about machine learning and yeah. that's yeah. artificial intelligence. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, aren't those yeah. the robots that we're talking about to some extent? That was the the, fam- the New York Times had, had the famous headline about the robots coming to take all our jobs, and they were basically right. talking about machine learning. And, right. And, and, and uh, we benefit from machine learning today, right? You were probably about to say the same thing. I mean, yeah. If you're using Amazon or eBay, you love it. You, we actually love machine learning. We just don't know it yet. So yeah. it, it absolutely will uh, will arise in our industry. I think yeah. that the you know machine learning is is not an end in and of itself. It's a technology that's going to get deployed in other technologies that will help lawyers do their job more efficiently, right? Um, And it will help them with the things that computers and machines always help with, which are the uh, more routine, uh, you know, less or more commoditized, less difficult tasks. Now, when you get to to really high orders orders of thinking, um, you know, 
you still need humans. And this is witnessed by, you know, the famous uh, Watson, you know, fail during during the during Jeopardy was when, you know, Watson replies to a question about U.S. cities with an answer of Toronto. Right. Which on its face, if you were a lawyer and your client asked you, like, what country is Toronto in? You know, and he said the United States, they would fire you immediately. Right. So I hope. <laughs> yeah, there are still there are still enough of these sort of like, wow, I don't know how it didn't understand that thing. Uh, and it seems like we're a good deal away from that. I think when we get away from that point is when we should start getting worried. I think when the computers finally figure out where they're making mistakes is where, uh, but that is a far off apocalyptic world. That yeah, I'm not James worried Cameron about computers becoming trial trial lawyers. I'm a little bit worried about computers becoming judges. I'm a little bit, <laughs> you know, I'm a little bit worried about some of that you know, as, as we were talking about a little bit about the predictive stuff where the compu- where you can the computers can figure out who was going to win the case. I don't want to computer telling me who was gonna win the case or who should win win the case and I and I, I feel like that would come a lot more more quickly than an actual like trial courtroom Matthew McConaughey computer right. lawyer right well but in a, in a judicial system that you know seems unfairly uh, weighted against the poor the underclass minorities, is that necessarily a bad thing? Wouldn't some, wouldn't some at least statistical analysis, wouldn't some automation around how opinions are being made and decisions are being issued actually help improve the administration of justice? So we are just about out of time for this. We're, we're running out of time on this. But, Ellie, I just wanted to ask you, since you, you moderated this panel, uh, you know, what are you seeing in the big trends, really, in terms of sort of talking about the future of law? What's, what's important to you to be talking about and thinking about? Oh, actually, I think we just hit on the, the, the two most important points, right? I, I do think that some kind of uh, of investor-led legal services, I, I do think that's absolutely coming. And I do think that machine learning, predictive coding, predictive coding is already everywhere. I do think that more and more machine learning, that that is something that happens. Figure my kids too, and that's going to happen long before he come, he goes to college or law school. That that the that these factors will be a big part of the legal landscape. All right. Well, uh, Sylvia, Rakesh, Jessica, and Ellie, thanks a lot for taking the time to uh, speak with us this afternoon. It's really been interesting. It's been great to have you. Thanks for well, having us, Bob. And uh, that concludes this special report. This is the Legal Talk Network. We're broadcasting from the uh, Above the Law Converge Conference in New York City. This is Bob Ambrogi. Thanks for listening. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.